All right, welcome to our uh, ninth segment in the life of Messiah. We are going to look at the authority of the Messiah to interpret the law tonight. Uh, so let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for this opportunity uh, to come and study the life of your Son, Jesus Christ, what he did for us uh, on the cross. And we know that in our series here, we are quickly headed towards that point, and we, uh, we wait for it with great anticipation, but we are fascinated by his life uh, leading up to that point. And uh, tonight, as we look at his perfect righteousness in accordance with the Mosaic Law, uh, we once again will stand in awe at his perfect righteousness, your chosen sacrifice for our sins. We thank you and we praise you for him uh, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> All right, this is number nine. We are one third of the way through. Can you believe it? And we're still in point two, the authentication of the king. And he is authenticating himself at the moment in our study by his uh, authority to interpret the law. Next week, we will begin looking at the controversy over the king, where Israel begins to officially reject him as their Messiah. So this is our last night where it is purely offering the kingdom and showing the contrast between himself and the theological systems that were popular in Israel in that day. <clears throat> Tonight's section of scriptures is what is popularly known as the Sermon on the Mount. Again, usually when the life of Messiah is studied, it's studied in a geographical sense, where he was at what point and what he was doing. But we are taking a thematic approach, which means we are more concerned with which events led to the next ones so that we can see why certain things happened in his life. So rather than calling this one the Sermon on the Mount, we are focusing on his authority to interpret the law. It's called the Sermon on the Mount because in Matthew 5.1, it says he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, which was how rabbis taught, they taught sitting, uh, his disciples came to him. Uh, this one is actually not Matthew 5.1, but Matthew 6, or Luke 6.17. I think I titled this one wrong. It says, Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. So this is not the Sermon on the Mount, but the Sermon on the Level Place here. There are two possibilities. Either he went up onto a mountain and found a level place on that mountain, or these are two different sermons. It's not unheard of for a preacher to preach the same sermon twice. Uh, I actually prefer the second interpretation. I think these happened in close uh, succession, but it seems his purpose in both sermons is different. One is narrow for his uh, brand new apostolic group, which he just closed immediately before this happened. And the other is for a broader audience, not just his disciples, but those who came from Judea, Jerusalem, Tyre, and Sidon. <clears throat> On that note, we want to remember where in his life this sermon comes. It comes during the Sanhedrin investigation into his messianic claims. He is claiming to be the Messiah that Israel has long expected, and they are going to first observe him, 
and see if his claims have any validity to them, and then they will begin to interrogate him, either by opposition or simply trying to better understand. It seems clear already that they are opposing him, or they are poised to oppose him, especially after last week's study where we saw him uh, come against the Pharisaic teaching on the Sabbath, which was really the core of their theology. So this happens, again, immediately after the initial conflicts, conflicts with the Pharisees. They have finished their observation stage. They are in the interrogation and opposition stage of their investigation. And I think most importantly, this is immediately following the closing of his apostolic group. He has many disciples, but he has 12 apostles. He has closed this group and he is now training them, training them in what the difference between his theology, which is consistent with the Mosaic law, how it is different from the Pharisaic teachings, Pharisaic theology, which is a works theology, not a faith theology. And it is not a theology by the word of Moses in the uh, Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. It is a theology based on the teaching of other rabbis. <clears throat> the Sermon on the Mount is a unit. He is teaching one thing with many examples, with many points and subpoints. It can be a little complicated, especially if we're just taking it one piece at a time, which is why tonight we are taking the entire chunk at once, which is a lot to bite off in one hour. So as we prepare to look at this, we are going to look at three things that the Sermon on the Mount is not, and then one thing that the Sermon on the Mount is. First, it is not a constitution for the kingdom. This is not teaching what will be required in the messianic kingdom, although the principles of righteousness will be the same. The law will not be the same. When there is a change of the priesthood, there is a change in the law. Secondly, and this is probably more important for us to understand, this is not a means of salvation. Keeping these aspects of the uh, righteousness of God, the righteousness demonstrated in the law of Moses, does not save someone. This was a rule of life in Jesus' day under the Mosaic law. This was how they were expected to live because they were a covenant people with God. Third, this is not a church age ethic. This is not teaching the law of Christ. This is teaching the law of Moses. <clears throat> now you'll see I have a little note up here. Righteousness is a very long word. And uh, in a very uncustomary way for theologians, we found a shorthand for this. R plus will be righteousness. Unrighteousness is R minus. So when you see those, think righteousness or unrighteousness, uh, my slides are limited in space. So what is the sermon? The sermon is Jesus' perfect interpretation of the righteous standard required by the Mosaic law in contrast with the Pharisees' false standard of oral law righteousness. You remember last week we spent a little bit of time on the difference between the written law and the oral law. There was a myth of sorts, you could say, passed down through Jewish tradition after the return from Babylon that Moses was not given one law, but he was given a written law, 
And the rest, the far larger portion of the law, was given to him orally, and he transmitted it through tradition. This was nowhere found in Scripture. It was an invention of the rabbis to give themselves and their words authority. It is not biblical. And this was really what was the cancer in Israel at that time. No longer was the law of Moses the standard of righteousness, but the words of the rabbis, the words of the Pharisees, which reinterpreted the law and distorted them and perverted them, had become the new standard of righteousness. So this is really Jesus' treatise on the errors in Pharisaic theology. It breaks down pretty well into five different portions, the characteristics of true righteousness, those who attain true righteousness, those who fail to attain it, the relationship of those who are righteous to God and to man, and the relationship of those who attain true righteousness to the world. Then there is a code of true righteousness, conduct of true righteousness, the custom of true righteousness, and cautions about true righteousness. We start with the relationship to God. This is really the most important aspect of righteousness. Righteousness should have us in right relationship with God. <clears throat> and this is half of what we call the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now there are about as many interpretations of this verse as there are theologians. But uh, it's actually not that hard to understand when it's put in its context. When we isolate the Sermon on the Mount, we can make it mean just about anything we want. But when we look at what's happening in the life of Christ and what he is responding to, what has been going on in Israel in that day, we understand a bit better what is going on. This word blessed, makarios, in the Greek is uh, better translated here, happy, perhaps. Uh, <clears throat> it has the sense of being blessed, uh, of being privileged. But here is contradictory to what we would think as something happy. Here is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean by poor in spirit? It means to have a proper evaluation of oneself. Not to be self-righteous, but to understand your own need for someone else's righteousness. To receive perfect righteousness, because you can't attain to it. <clears throat> Blessed or happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This mourning may not be mourning as we think of it, just simple sadness. But rather the development of a sensitivity to sin. Our sin should cause us to mourn, but our sin should also cause us to confess our sins and to seek the one who could cover our sins. Again, the Mosaic law is supposed to point towards the Savior, not towards our own righteousness, but righteousness that we receive from another. This mourning is interesting, considering a verse that we saw a little earlier in our study. When Jesus entered into the synagogue in Nazareth to declare the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, he stopped before an important verse on mourning. 
What he quoted was uh, similar to, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he says, this has been fulfilled today in your hearing. But he stops before the second part of verse 2. The second part of verse 2 speaks about the last days, the end of the tribulation period where Israel will receive the Messiah. And interestingly enough, we find it concerning mourning, this very mourning which the law is supposed to point them towards, this sensitivity towards sin, one specific sin, the rejection of the Messiah. So what he does not quote because it is not yet fulfilled is this, these words by Isaiah, to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, in Jerusalem, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of the spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. The planting of the Lord, not the self-planting as well. This is righteousness received from the Lord. <clears throat> and this will take place in the last days. The third one here, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Other translations have this meek. They will inherit the earth. This is a quiet confidence in God not in self-confidence of ability to keep the law, but a confidence in God and his forgiveness under the law. This was a recognition and submission to God's authority, not to man's authority. It makes us think of Psalms 37, verse 11, but the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Keep in mind, Jesus is here interpreting the law. The law was given to Israel, and the Israel has certain promises connected with law-keeping. And one is that they would stay in the land. And fourth, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This simply means to live consistently with the righteous standard of the Mosaic law for the Jews. They hunger and thirst for righteousness, the righteousness of the law, and not the righteousness of the Pharisees. The remaining Beatitudes have to do with relationship between men. The ones that we just saw have to do with our relationship to God. Here, the fifth, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The merciful are those who are compassionate, responsive to the needs of others. The Pharisees were not like this. They were not compassionate towards those who needed compassion. Blessed are the pure in heart, those who have proper motivation, those who deal with truth and honesty, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, these peacemakers does not have a political sense here. That's nowhere in the context. It has to do with fellowship. 
having a state of unity among believers. I think it's specifically speaking of the remnant of Israel, the believing portion of Israel, the Israel of God. <clears throat> this does not mean blessed are the conciliatory, blessed are those who forego God's righteousness for the purpose of making peace, but rather those who are in peace about the true standard of righteousness, in peace with one another on the basis of truth, not on the basis of a different standard. The Pharisees did have a measure of peace among themselves. This peace itself is not what's spoken of here. This peace cannot forego truth. And then lastly, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees were practicing persecution of those who were in alignment with the Mosaic law, but not with the oral law. Jesus here says, blessed are those, because they have kept the word of God. They have measured up to the righteous standard of the Mosaic law, though they fall short of the false man-made system of the oral law. <clears throat> and now I think he gets to the heart of the issue at hand. With the Mosaic law and its righteous standards pointing towards the only man who is ever able to keep the righteous standards of the law, the Messiah. One's recognition and his humility, his right measuring of himself against the law should point him to the realization that no one can keep this law save for the one who is perfect, the Messiah. And so reception of the Messiah is really the heart of the issue in the law. Blessed are you when people insult and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Those who have received the Messiah, those who have recognized his righteousness and received it for themselves through faith. Those who align themselves with the Messiah, his offer of the kingdom, are going to be persecuted by those who have a false sense of righteousness, a human sense of righteousness rather than a divine sense of righteousness through the written word of God. And so those who receive him are rejected and persecuted by those whose man-made standard of righteousness rejects and persecutes the Messiah. In Luke, we are given some negative beatitudes. Four different woes, those who are unrighteous. Woe to you who are rich, for you will receive your comfort in full, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Those who are seeking a false righteousness, a self-righteousness that is not the intent of the law, will seek wealth, self-satisfaction, merriment, and reputation among men. Unfortunately, this is the state of the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They are looking for self-righteousness. <clears throat> Now, a man in proper relationship to God, properly assessing himself against the law, 
will recognize his need for righteousness coming from God, not from himself. And with that recognition, he becomes the salt of the earth. Here in Matthew 13, it says you are the salt of the earth, those who are in alignment with the Beatitudes. But if the salt has become tasteless, it says, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, salt is a common and a very good analogy of the believer. First, it has to do with thirst. Salt causes thirst just as believers in this world should cause those who witness uh, the light to have a thirst for it, who witness this righteousness that is not a self-righteousness, but an acceptance of an inability to live up to that righteous standard and to receive it by faith through Christ. That should make those around us thirsty, just as salt does. It is also a seasoning. This has more to do with a fellowship aspect. This is what makes life worth living for those in the church. And it has a preservative aspect as well. We can look at Isaiah 1.9 and see how the remnant of Israel had an effect of preservation on the entire nation of Israel. Isaiah 1.9 says, Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom, we would be like Gomorrah. In fact, it is because there was a believing remnant in Israel at all times, God is faithful to his promise to Israel to preserve them. At the very last days, we see that a third of Israel will turn to faith in Christ as their Messiah, and by that remnant, the nation will be saved. <clears throat> a second analogy is also a very good one. You are the light of the world, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now that light is not a light that comes from within us, and this is the difference between Phariseeism and the righteousness of the law. That light should come from the one who does keep the law, and that is Jesus the Messiah. And when that light is properly lit in us, good works come from that. It is possible for a Christian to go his entire life without producing good works. It is a sad testimony when you meet one. But the proper alignment, the proper adjustment to the righteousness of Jesus Christ should produce good works in the believer. This is true in all ages. Before Christ came and after Christ came, putting your faith in God, that light of perfect righteousness, produces good works. And those good works are what is a demonstration to the world of what Jesus does in the heart of the believer. We move now to the code of true righteousness. Jesus is going to take a few laws from the Old Testament, which the Pharisees have perverted and he is going to teach them the true meaning of those laws. He is going to perfectly interpret 
the law for them. It's necessary to have a few words of introduction on this, and Matthew actually provides those words for us through the words of Jesus. He says, do, you, or do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Abolishing would mean to do away with without fulfilling. To fulfill means to fulfill. Something that is fulfill, fulfilled is done. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Now a jot is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It is pronounced yod in Hebrew though. It is this little one on the, is that your guys' left or your right? The small one on the side. That is a jot and a tittle is similar to a serif in English orthography, but it actually changes the meaning of a word. So it's perhaps more like dotting your I's and crossing your T's. Uh, you can see they're circled here in red. The difference between a dalit and a resh is simply a small little tag. The difference between a kaf and a bet is a small little tag. In other words, he is saying, down to the smallest letter of the law and down to the smallest stroke which changes a letter. You could think if you don't cross your T, it's actually an L. That's kind of the idea here. Without a single change, the law will be accomplished. The issue with the Pharisees is they are changing the laws. They are adding to it, and by adding to it, they are not preserving it, they are corrupting it. Notice as well here, when one speaks, you don't see these small little letters, you don't see these tags. The oral law does not have jots and tittles. The written law does. This is the distinction between the law of Moses and the tradition of the rabbis here. Jesus could not be saying it in any clearer terms. The traditions which you have developed, cultivated, and dispersed throughout Israel are not the law of Moses. They are not the true intention of the law. What Jesus is coming to give them is the true interpretation of the law, and he will perfectly fulfill it because it cannot be accomplished until he has fulfilled it. And he continues, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments. The law of Moses is 613 distinct laws. Not one of them can be inoperative without the entire thing being inoperative. You can't pick and choose which laws to keep and which laws not to keep. Jesus had to keep them all, and he perfectly completed all of them. He accomplished the law, everything that it intended. Whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments, which the Pharisees were doing, they were annulling them. The teachers and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Notice as well, both of these are in the kingdom of heaven. 
It's not law-keeping that gets you in or keeps you in. It's faith. But law-keeping is still expected for those with faith. Those who have had faith but then corrupt the law will still be in heaven, but their position in heaven will not be as great because they will have corrupted the righteousness of God and taught others to do so. They will be untrustworthy. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is probably the key verse in the entire Sermon on the Mount. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. The subtext in that is the scribes and the Pharisees will not be in the kingdom of heaven because they have not attained a righteousness that surpasses their own. He is waging a polemic against Pharisaic Judaism. How is it possible for one to have a righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees actually taught that all of Israel, by nature of being Jewish, will be in the kingdom. And their status or their elevation in the kingdom will have to do with their self-righteousness, their, uh, their following of the oral law. How well did we keep the law as interpreted by the Pharisees? That will elevate us in the kingdom. What Jesus is saying here is they won't even be there. Not by nature of their Jewishness, because that does not get you into the kingdom. But a righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees, that's what gets you into the kingdom. And no one person, save alone for the Messiah, Jesus Christ, can have that perfect righteousness. So unless you have his perfect righteousness, you will not enter into the kingdom. <clears throat> so it's the context clearly drawn that he is making a distinction between the Pharisees' interpretation of the law and the true interpretation of the law. He uses a few samples. The first one he starts with is murder. He says, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Now notice what Jesus does not say. He does not say you have read it written. He says you have heard that the ancients were told. Two acts of speaking. The transmission of the oral law, not the transmission of the written law. You shall not commit murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. The focus here is on what makes you punishable physically. The physical act of murder will make you phys physically subject to the law. You can be stoned for murder. Jesus' issue with that is that it doesn't attain to the true righteousness of the law. It is only the outward expression of the law. He says, but I say to you. He's going to do this six times here. You have heard it said through the oral law, through the traditions of the elders, but I say to you, the authority of the Messiah interprets for you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough 
to go into the fiery hell. Now again, I must reiterate, this is not a code of salvation. This is not how you get saved. This is not how you stay saved. But this should, as the ultimate standard of righteousness, be indicating to all those who are under the law that they are not worthy of this righteousness, but one who is coming will be. Because even having hatred in your heart towards another person makes you guilty of a sin, a sin against the true righteousness of God, and so deserving of the fiery hell. This does not mean that if you believe in Christ, but you hate your neighbor, now you are going to the fiery hell because Christ's death on the cross paid for that sin. But it does mean that even just hatred is a transgression of the law, not one punishable by any punishment under the law, but it has already broken the intent of the law, the true righteousness required by it. He continues, therefore, if you are presenting your offerings, something done under the Mosaic law, not in the church age, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offerings. Offerings under the Mosaic law have to do with payments for transgressions, the covering of a sin. But if you are holding on to that sin and offering a payment at the altar, that absolves you of that sin under the law, but it still breaks the law in not attaining to the righteousness required by the law. Make friends quickly, he says. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. He's going to reiterate something similar to this uh, in the law of Messiah. Uh, Paul is that you don't want to take to law what you can handle in-house. Why demonstrate to the rest of the world that you can't get along in the body of Christ? That has to do with our witness. Now, what is different about the church and Israel is the church is not a theocracy in a political sense. Israel was a political theocracy and a spiritual theocracy. The church is a spiritual theocracy with the head um, being Christ. Here they could take to law, measuring up against the Mosaic law, but how much better to settle it between one another rather than requiring vengeance under the law, seeking self-satisfaction of being vindicated. It is much better to be forgiving than vindicated. He's going to express that more clearly in a few verses here. Secondly, the law of adultery he brings up here. This is not the only time he brings up the law of adultery in the Mosaic law sense. He's going to bring it up again in Matthew 18 when he is repudiating the Pharisees for their final rejection of him. But here he does give a quick summary. He says, you have heard that it was said, again, transmitted through the oral law, you shall not commit adultery. 
But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman and lusts for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The Pharisees operated under the look but don't touch principle. The outward actions kept them from breaking the law, but the inward actions they had already transgressed the righteousness of the law. Jesus' response to that is, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for you, for your whole body to go into hell. I think a reasonable application of this is, if the oral law is causing you to transgress the true righteousness of the Mosaic law, throw it away. <clears throat> he handles the law of divorce. Again, he will go into more detail on this in Matthew 18. He says it was said, oral law, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, there were really two schools of thought in Phariseeism. The school of Hillel said that you could divorce your wife for just about anything. Burning soup is a good example. If the wife burned the soup, you could put her away with a bill of divorce. The school of Shammai was much more strict. There were very few, if any, uh, reasons to put away a wife um, <clears throat> In divorce. Jesus does allow one exception to the rule of no divorce here. He says, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now remember this is the Mosaic law. Jesus is going to teach something a little different um, for the church. It is not going to be much different. Um, in fact, it's going to be a little more strict. But under the Mosaic law, again, because of the hardness of their hearts, they were allowed to divorce, but divorce was never promoted. It was never a good thing. <clears throat> a good way to put that is divorce is never commanded, but it is permitted in certain circumstances. The law of oaths. Again, you have heard it, uh, heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Now, the oral law was an expert in finding ways to get people out of their oaths. There were loopholes after loophole after loophole. If you had any reservations while making the vow, you could be absolved of the vow. If you went to a priest and had him absolve you of your vow, your vow would be absolved. Jesus, however, says, I say to you, make no oath at all. Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, you have no control over it, you have no authority over it, you cannot invoke it in an oath. Or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you even make an oath by your own head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. 
This has to do with purity and truth regarding speech. Taking an oath is a means of making your own word more trustworthy, your own word more weighty. Jesus' response is, let your statements be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond this is evil. Your word should be trustworthy enough on its own. And the law of non-resistance. This one is tough for many of us. In fact, this one probably is one of the hardest ones here. It's not every day we are faced with whether or not we should be getting a divorce. But this one, we are pretty much daily uh, affected by. Do we retaliate against a perceived wrong or do we exercise forgiveness? He says, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now remember, this is oral law. The principle behind this is the punishment should not exceed the crime. This is a law that we have as well in the United States. This is a good law to have, but it is still a legal principle. And that legal principle was often abused by the Pharisees for the purpose of extracting personal vengeance. Yes, it is possible to use the law to vindicate oneself, but much better to leave vengeance unto the Lord. Jesus says, I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Again, I must reiterate, this is the Mosaic law, not the law of Christ. This is not a church age ethic. We are not required to give to anyone who asks to borrow from us. But those who were under the law here together we're all under the law together. It was possible to use your brother. They were supposed to be willing to give without the expectation of anything in return. We give under the same principle, although we exercise a different sort of discernment when we give in the church age. We can look at 1 John. We will be looking at 1 John on that issue uh, probably less than a year from now. And here, the law of love. Jesus says, but I say to you. Actually, I forgot. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, the, uh, the Pharisees defined what a neighbor was basically by anyone who agrees with us, which meant that they were able to hate everyone who didn't agree with them, and they felt that they were in alignment with the Mosaic law for this purpose. Now, they used uh, various psalms to support this, but they took those psalms conveniently out of context. I think it's Psalm 137 or 139, uh, where it says that you've hated your enemies. So the Pharisees believe that anyone who does not agree with them is an enemy of God. Therefore, they are right in hating them. Now, we are to hate the world, the cosmos system, but never the people in it, especially not 
those who we are in fellowship with in faith, but not those who we should be ministers to as salt and light either. We are never called to hate anyone, not under the law, not under the law of Christ. Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God is merciful towards all of his creation, not just those who agree with him, not just those who recognize him as God and recognize him as Lord, but he is merciful and persevering towards all. The true righteousness of the law requires that. It continues, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. The tax collectors was one group of people which did not agree with the Pharisees whom they hated. And so the tax collectors, they did not consider their neighbors. They would hate them rather than love them. Jesus is saying, even those ones who you hate, Aren't they, uh, do not even the tax collectors do the same? The tax collectors love within their own group and despise them. How are they any better than those whom they despise? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Gentiles was another group which they despised and felt vindicated in hating. And then comes one of the scariest verses in the Bible if you are trying to achieve this righteousness through your own works rather than receiving the righteousness of Christ. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, if this were a how do you get saved sermon, this line would have absolutely nothing to do in this sermon. It would not be present anywhere which is one way, along with a bucket full of other ways that we know this sermon is not a how-do-you-get-saved sermon. You are not required to be perfect by your works, as the Heavenly Father is perfect. You are commanded to be perfected by the work of Christ through faith alone in order to be saved. And that is exactly how you fulfill this command as well. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How? By receiving his perfection. We are to be obedient, and we are to seek forgiveness where we fail. Israel was commanded the same thing under the Mosaic Law. It is a standard that is consistent. They seek it through animal sacrifice as part of their law code. We seek it through prayer and confession under the law of Christ. Same principle, different outward expression. Because it is not the outward expression that saves you, but the inward intention. And the, yeah, the inward intention. Let's move on to the conduct of true righteousness. This will be similar to the previous, but he's not dealing here with specific laws in the law code but he is dealing with specific customs in Jewish culture. Those are giving alms, public prayer, and fasting. 
he is going to correct their misconduct. <clears throat> so Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. A purpose clause in order to be noticed, practicing righteousness. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Now, notice again, this continues to bring up rewards. We talk about that distinction quite often on Sundays, the difference between salvation and accumulating rewards. Right alignment to the commands of God, obedience to God's commands, do not acquire salvation, save only for the command to believe, but they do build up rewards in heaven. The same goes for Jews. Christians do not stand above the Jews on this issue. Uh, proper practice of the law would build up rewards for the Jew in heaven. So the issue of giving alms then. He's going to apply this principle to specific situations. When you give to the poor, which they did, Pharisees and uh, remnant alike, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. They would announce their generous donations. God says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward in full. They have sought the recognition of men, and they have received it. They have not sought the recognition of God, the true righteousness under the law. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Public prayer. <clears throat> this verse is often taken to teach that public prayer is wrong. That is not at all what this verse is talking about. In its context, again, we have to start with verse 5 and not verse 6. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they might be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they will have their reward in full. In other words, public prayer is not a demonstration of one's oratory skills. It should not impress those around you with your righteousness. Your reward will be in full because that prayer was not for God, but for those around you. Jesus says, but when you pray, go into your inner room. Close your door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. <clears throat> this is a principle of where your prayers should be directed and who they should be for. If you have an issue with praying out loud because it tempts you to try to demonstrate your oral skills so that you are not focused on God, it is much better to pray in private and to be silent in public. He gives a second principle of prayer here. When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask him. Unfortunately, at this time in rabbinic Judaism, Pharisaic Judaism, 
prayers had become repetitive and meaningless, just like the Gentile religions. Jesus gives them then a pattern of what prayer should be like. He reiterates this prayer in a section uh, directed towards the church as well in Luke 11. Here this is directed towards uh, those under the Mosaic law. And the interesting thing is not much changes about the pattern. In fact, it is identical, save alone for under the church, it is added that they should pray on the authority of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. <clears throat> it's color-coded here because there are various different uh, categories of prayer. Again, we don't want to forget what was just said in verses 7 and 8. Don't use meaningless repetition. Your prayers should not be rote. They should not be a liturgy, you could say. They should also not be haphazard or illogical. They should be logical, thoughtful, organized, addressed to God the Father, focusing on his attributes, who he is, sanctifying God and honoring him. <clears throat> we see that in our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, focusing on God's holiness. This is not given to us as a rote prayer, which we repeat to be extra righteous. This is a pattern we are given. The addressee is God the Father. We sanctify him. We recognize his attributes. Second part, we pray for his kingdom program. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for his eschatological program of the kingdom, as well as his preparations here on earth beforehand. For those here receiving this Sermon on the Mount, an immediate application of this prayer could be that Israel receives their Messiah and that the kingdom comes. For us, an application of this is that the Lord return quickly and that we be about his business in the meantime in sharing his word and that his word not come back in vain, as he said it would not. The fourth is to pray for daily needs. Give us our daily bread. Interestingly here in his pattern, he puts requests before confession of sin. Before he asks for forgiveness. Fifth, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. This goes contrary to our logic, but it fits God's. Asking for what we need shows us that we have a need. Our greatest need that we should be asking for is forgiveness. Forgiveness of our sins, that keeps us in family fellowship. Fellowship with God. He is our Father. This is not asking for forgiveness of our sins so that we can be saved, but forgiveness of our sins so that we can stay in intimate fellowship with him, so that we can stay in fellowship with our brothers and sisters. Those who are praying this prayer are already saved. They wouldn't be praying it otherwise. And lastly, a prayer for protection in spiritual warfare. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
prayer is supposed to be structured. This does not mean we can't shoot off our quick needs to God. We are um, to be in constant contact and communication with Him. But when we sit down to pray, to actually have a conversation with Him, we are not to just spout out a memorized prayer. We're not to spout off a written prayer. We are not to just spout off anything. But we are to carefully consider who He is, what He has done for us, what His will and His program are. Prayer is how we communicate back to God what we have received from Him in His written word. It helps us to solidify in our minds who He is, what He has done, and what His will is. We should be thoughtful about that, and that's what Jesus is teaching here. And His fourth concern here is humility about prayer. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Again, this is not about salvation. This is not saying you need to forgive everyone around you before God will ever save you from your sins. Those who are praying these prayers are already saved. But if you are holding a grudge against your brother and you refuse to forgive him, you have grossly misunderstood God's forgiveness towards you. Ephesians 2 tells us that we should be forgiving towards our brothers and sisters because God has forgiven us. The same thing is true for Israel as is for the church. We should be forgiving because we have been forgiven. <clears throat> and then the conduct of fasting. Jesus says, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Sounds just like the others. We do it to be noticed. Jesus says this is not the true exercise of righteous conduct. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So rather than doing as a show the requirements of the law, better to do in secret so that you would be rewarded by God and not by men. <clears throat> All right, customs of true righteousness. We're given five here. What to do with money, what to do about anxiety, about judging, prayer, and then we get the golden rule, the core practice. He starts, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Now remember, the previous had to do with rewards. Are we getting our rewards from men? Or are we getting our rewards from God in heaven? These treasures being stored up on earth is not necessarily or not exclusively uh, physical riches. But they could also be status and riches that we acquire from our status on earth. He is saying much better than to store up your treasures in heaven, to be rewarded by God rather than to be rewarded by men 
where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think that's an easily, easily explained uh, principle there. If we have our things set on our rewards in heaven, we are seeking heaven, our heart is there. If we have our hearts set on seeking rewards here on earth, that's where our heart is. And focused on the earth is by a necessity excluded from being focused on heaven. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will devote to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Wealth here is the Greek word mammon, which is an Aramaic word or a Mishnaic word from the oral law, uh, meaning the love of things, the love of possessions, especially the love of wealth. Wealth is a good English translation of this word. It is not simply <clears throat> um, practicing responsibility with money, but it is having your goal as money possessions, material things. What do we do with anxiety? For this reason, I say, do not be worried about your life. So we have, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Do not be worried about your life. Lots of uh, do nots here. As to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put in it. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? I'm going to skip reading these examples, but I will tell them to you. About food, God feeds the birds who don't sow or reap their own food. He uses a Hebrew uh, concept of teaching called Kal Vayomer. Um, in these words down here, much more. He uses a simple, easy explanation to demonstrate a bit more complicated explanation. You could say, yeah, well, it's easy to feed the birds. It's a little harder to find a meal to feed myself and uh, five children. You're using the wrong standard for God. Neither is harder than the other. God feeds the birds. How much more does he care about you? If he does this little thing, how much more will he do this big thing that means so much more to him? As well, being worried about clothing, how you're going to clothe yourself. God arrayed the lilies with beautiful clothing, uh, even better than Solomon. If he does this for the lilies, how much more is he going to do this for you? Now, this is a standard of uh, regular practice. This does not mean that under periods of persecution, God is still going to feed and clothe you. Those are outliers. Those are unique but his standard here is providing for the physical needs of the believer. When our lives are regular, we don't have to be worried about these things. When our lives are irregular, we don't seek our own means of providing these things. We seek God's means of providing these things. Sometimes that means praying for a job to keep food on the table. God can provide that job. I grew up in a family where sometimes we had bags of groceries show up on the porch. That is also a way that God can provide. One way or another, we always ate and we always had clothes. It didn't feel comfortable all the time, 
but God did provide. We might not have known how tomorrow was going to work out, but God did. And God did provide. That is God's provision. And he does this not only for believers. He does this for unbelievers as well. We, however, have a relationship in a direct line to him. We talk with him. We are in conversation with him. He cares for us. He cares for unbelievers. He cares for birds. He cares for plants. But Jesus' point is, don't worry about these things. They are a distraction. You can spend so much time worried about what you're going to eat and what you are going to clothe yourself with, and never knowing what tomorrow is going to bring, constantly worried about tomorrow, you will never have your heart or your eyes focused on the proper focus, which is the kingdom and his righteousness. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough troubles of its own, I have had verse 4 used here to tell me we should not be studying theology. That makes us anxious. It makes us worried. We should be much more concerned with our day-to-day lives. Obviously, they did not read a single verse that came before verse 34. The exact opposite is being taught here. We should spend our times occupied with his word, with getting to know him. He is already taking care of us. Judging. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Again, probably one of the most abused verses in the entire New Testament. This does not mean that under no circumstances shall you ever judge. Why? Because there is a verse 2. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard measure, it will be measured to you. What is the issue that Jesus is dealing with? A perverted standard of righteousness. The oral law rather than the Mosaic law. If the Pharisees are holding everyone else up to their own standards of righteousness under the oral law, which are perverted and no longer even resemble the Mosaic law, they are going to be held to that standard. And that standard is not covered for them in the righteousness of the Messiah. Because the Messiah has come to fulfill the righteousness of the Mosaic law. They are on their own for living up to their own standards that they have applied to everyone else. And they cannot live up even to their own standards, even though it is a broad standard that has many loopholes for them and many traps for others. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Again, the distinction here is on the standard of righteousness, the measuring stick that is used. The log, in this case, is the oral law. They are blinded by a misappropriation of the wrong standard. That standard does not allow them to see at all. That speck that they are removing from their brother's eye is the same material that is blocking their own. They are correcting others' conduct claiming that it is the authority of God through the law when it is not a law that God has given. 
You hypocrite, Jesus says, first take that log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take a speck out of your brother's eye. <clears throat> Prayer. Here we get a fifth aspect of prayer. It is separated from the other four that we got earlier. And this is to be persistent in prayer. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened for you. Again, we get more detail about this in the New Testament and how this applies to the believer. We see that when we are in line, in fellowship with God, our prayers are in his will. We are not praying for things that are uh, outside of his will because we are in fellowship with him. Those things that we ask that are in his will will be granted. <clears throat> sometimes the answer is no, sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's not yet, of course. Everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, to him who knocks it will be opened. The idea here in the present tense, ask, seek, and knock in the imperative is to keep doing that. Keep asking, keep knocking, keep seeking. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? <clears throat> In Luke, he asks, if he asks for an egg, will you give him a scorpion? If then, being evil, or if then, being evil, know how to if you then, there we go. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Again, the Cal Wyomer argument of if this little thing, much more the big thing. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask of him? Bad fathers know how to give their sons good gifts. A good father knows how to give his sons good gifts. <clears throat> so here we go. We have our principle of prayer. They are to be directed to God, not to the men around us, to show off our oratory skills. They are to be extemporaneous. They are to be not memorized prayers, but thoughtful prayers based on the needs of today. Prayer is to be persistent, not vain and repetitive. Persistent prayer does have repetition in it. We ask again and again and again, perhaps, for the same thing. That is not a vainly repetitive prayer. Vainly repetitive prayer would be simply the repetition of the same words again and again and again and again and again until they lose all meaning. Sometimes our worship is like this, the same words again and again, ad nauseum, until somehow they no longer mean anything to us. Prayer, like our worship, should be thoughtful. Worship is, in fact, the proper response to truth. It should be a response to that truth that is logical. It should be organized, not haphazard. And post-rejection, when Jesus teaches this principle of prayer again, he will add that it is to be prayed in his name, on his authority. Lastly here, the core practice. In everything, he says, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law of the prophets, the golden rule. It is going to be reiterated after 
the resurrection of Christ, no longer to be, treat others as you would have them treat you, but love others as I have loved them. There will be an amplification of this golden rule in the church age. This is the last section we're going to go through tonight. The cautions of true righteousness. There are two paths here. You can seek the righteousness that is defined by the Pharisees, or you can seek the righteousness of the law. The righteousness of the law points towards Jesus Christ. So here we have two ways, the narrow gate and the wide gate. Enter through the narrow gate, Jesus says, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now this, again, is misappropriated to say, if it's as simple as faith, it's not good enough. That's too wide. You need to do this and do this and do this and do this and do that to be saved. And that has nothing to do with what is going on in this context. The narrow gate is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. There is no other way to be saved. That is pretty darn narrow. And you know what? Most people in Israel at this point are not finding it. It is right there, present for them. Most people today in our age do not find this. Why? Because they are too focused on the broad gate, all the things they think they ought to do to be saved. The narrow gate is faith alone, in Christ alone, in his finished work on the cross alone, apart from any works of our own. That is pretty darn narrow. He uses the analogy of two trees here. Beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Keep in mind, especially for this last section, Jesus is teaching his disciples, whom he has newly established. Five of them are brand new to his apostolic group. He is training them for what they are going to encounter now as Jesus is rejected by Israel. Beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. The righteousness of the law is supposed to lead to good works. The Pharisees have become the oppressors of Israel. Their fruit is bad. Their theology is bad. A good tree, however, cannot produce bad fruit. If they had properly applied the law, their fruit would not be bad. Nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. There are two professions. As well, this one is misappropriated. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. On Sunday, again, we looked at a verse that pointed out what Jesus said the will of the Father was, and that that was that we would believe in him. Here, they are focused on the outward expressions. 
Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name cast out demons? In your name perform many miracles? The issue was they never knew him. They never believed him. They never believed in him. They saw he had authority, and they tried to acquire that authority by their physical actions. But they never saw his righteousness and tried to acquire his righteousness. They did not truly know who he was, and that was the issue. Then I will declare to them, he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Especially in the church age, you know, we are warned that there will be false teachers, false prophets, and sometimes they will give false signs, lying signs and wonders. We see in Revelation 13 in the tribulation that the second half of the tribulation will be exceptionally filled with lying signs and wonders. In Egypt, the Magi even produced uh, miracles that looked like life, the creation of life. They brought frogs up from the ground. They turned sticks into serpents. The signs do not validate the message. The message validates the signs. These false teachers do not have the proper message. Their signs are not valid. Lastly, we have two builders. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. The rock here is the true righteousness of the law in the Messiah. If they had built their uh, house on that rock, it would not be blown away. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now notice here there is an offer. His words are just now being spoken. Those who hear it are called to act on them. That should result in a rejection of Pharisaic theology and a turning to the words of Christ, recognizing that they are not properly demonstrating the Mosaic law, either in word or in action. They should forego the Pharisaic interpretation of the oral law, and they should cling to the written law of Moses, because in that they are pointed towards the Messiah. Sometimes we wonder, do we not, why did Israel reject this king who came and offered them a kingdom? We're going to answer that question next week, but I will spoil it for you. Because he wasn't a Pharisee. They weren't looking for someone to come and fulfill the Mosaic Law. They were looking for someone to come help them push the Pharisaic interpretation of the law to fill in what they believed were holes in the Mosaic Law, to help build a fence around the Mosaic Law. And he came tearing down that fence. He came saying, all of that theology is wrong. Only, only, only the word of God. 
And that is why Jesus gets rejected, because he wasn't a Pharisee. When the Pharisees reject him, Israel has a choice. Do we follow the Pharisees or do we follow Jesus? In the end, they follow uh, the Pharisees. Many will follow Jesus, but the nation as a whole follows the Pharisees, and it was the oral law that ended up causing the rejection of the Messiah. We have Matthew's conclusion here. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their own scribes. Their own scribes, their Pharisees, would attribute what they knew to whom they received the knowledge from. It is telling that the authority is never founded on the Mosaic law, but on the scribe that taught them. Rabbi so-and-so said this, and that is the authority. Rabbi so-and-so said that, and that is the authority. In other words, he is teaching them on the authority of interpreting the Mosaic law as it is written in the Torah, unchangeable. He is not teaching them with the same authority of the scribes, which is transmitted through oral law uh, back only a few hundred years, although they claim that it goes back to Moses. Did I finish that? When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. So I'll say this in conclusion, and we'll pick up points two and points three next week. The Sermon on the Mount is Messiah's interpretation of the righteousness of the law, the true righteous standard, and this is over against the Pharisees' interpretation, the corruption of the law. This is the Messiah's public rejection of the Pharisees' oral law, the Mishnah. Because of his rejection of the Pharisees, the Pharisees are going to reject him. But that's for next week. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that, uh, well, we thank you for this perfect interpretation by Jesus of the law. We can get confused and convoluted because we have many writings that are not yours that have been passed down and transmitted for us to uh, be deceived by. We thank you that you have seen fit to have these uh, lessons recorded for us, not just that they were given in their day by Jesus, but that you preserved them for us so that we can understand truly what the law was and what it is. We pray that uh, these words sink in, that we understand what Jesus is saying here and what he is teaching and how he is repudiating the Pharisees. We, uh, we pray that we uh, continue to seek the righteousness of Jesus and not a righteousness of our own. And we pray these things, Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.